So hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Sunday, August 2nd, 2020. It's approximately 1.05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here with Getu Teresa, who is an assistant professor of clinical medicine. He is a practicing academic physician based in New York. Um, and Getu, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Khadija, for having me. Would you like to say a little more about um, your professional background and your relationship to the Aroma protests? Hi, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a, a practicing physician and uh, residing currently in New York. And I originally am from Ethiopia. And uh, my relationship with the Oromo protest movement is uh, uh, just like any other Ethiopian with an Oromo background. I have my own opinion and also uh, I have my own understanding of what the Oromo protest movement is about. Uh, that's uh, really my relationship with the Oromo protest. And I, sure, sure, sure. I wanted to speak to you a little bit about the article you published in April in Ethiopian Insights of uh, Abi Ahmed, a philosopher king or a sophist. Um, and I really appreciated it because I think that the, the branding and packaging of the current um, presidential administration in Ethiopia, as far as to the West, has been one of progressiveness. You know, the potential to have uh, an African passport in Ethiopia, um, that we're bringing everybody together and unity. And you have a very detailed analysis kind of unpacking, you know, what does this administration really represent and who is Abi Ahmed and some of the underlying um, pre-existing ethnic tensions that are playing out in his in his uh, current presidency. Would you like to summarize a little bit about what you were discussing in that article, um, including maybe how some things have shifted in the last, uh, now we're in August, four months. All right, so as, as we know, Abiy Ahmed was uh, not a very much known person until uh, he came to the political scene in 2018. And his uh, coming to office in 2018 followed the resignation of uh, Haile Mariam Desali, uh, the prime minister at that time. The resignation was as a result of a sustained uh, protest movement from 2015 to 2018, mainly by the Oromo youth named Kero, which is a grassroots movement that was uh, really committed to an unbalanced struggle. So uh, until that time, Abiy Ahmed was not very much a known figure in Ethiopian politics, and but he was actually working under the shadow of uh, a very much known figure, uh, Lamama Gersa, who was the face of internal dissent within the ruling party. And uh, when Abiy Ahmed uh, came to power, he really uh, uplifted uh, the spirit of the entire uh, Ethiopians. He had a very positive and good message to the Ethiopian people. And he came in with the promise of uh, transforming Ethiopia into uh, to democracy by preparing Ethiopia for a fair and free election and also addressing uh, age-old questions of human rights abuses and also some specific questions uh, of the Oromo people in Ethiopia. 
And soon after coming to power, he really un undertook major reforms uh, and a breathtaking speed. And those include the release of political prisoners and unblocking uh, websites and the media that were uh, prevented from broadcasting and publishing uh, in Ethiopia. And certain uh, political uh, uh, parties that were banned in Ethiopia or designated as terrorists were allowed to return to Ethiopia. And a number of positive reforms, including normalization of relations with Eritrea. And also some um, neoliberal uh, economic reforms. And all this, uh, you know, earned him a global accolade. And particularly, his uh, peacemaking effort with the Eritrea is the one key uh, uh, reform uh, that earned him a recognition at the global level in the form of a Nobel Peace Prize. So those are positive reforms that uh, really gave hope. And But although there were some critics, even at that time, that most of the reforms that he was undertaking were not based on consensus, and it was basically it was his own uh, wishes and without consultation. Uh, so there was a concern that it was a one-man show. Uh, all those efforts, even if they were, you know, all of, all people mm -hmm. of Ethiopia received it positively, but there was that concern. There was also what most people were calling for a roadmap for this transition, because Abi was mainly seen as a transitional leader because he was not elected. So people were demanding a roadmap in terms of what the agendas of the transitions are, what are the priorities of the government, and some time-bound and specific agendas were uh, demanded by uh, a lot of people and stakeholders in that country. So that did not happen. So that's when things started to, uh, you know, get a little bit controversial in terms of the direction that he wants, he wants to take. So his notion of uh, the transition was, and he said he is the transition himself and there is no need for roadmap. He kind of uh, rebuffed the idea of having a roadmap. So that was the main concern. And soon, actually, within six months, there were, you know, we started to see some concern uh, in terms of uh, narrowing the political space and making it difficult for political parties from uh, moving from uh, place to place and meeting with their constituents, opening offices were getting uh, very difficult. And one thing that I want to mention also, I think his initial positive reforms, uh, you know, definitely helped him to gain support. And one of the things he did was when he addressed different communities, there was some concerns that some of the rhetoric he uh, deploys were kind of very tailored uh, to those specific communities. For example, when he talks to Oromo community, he um, taps into their emotion and their longings for equality and justice in that country. Sometimes even going as far as saying the Oromo culture, identity, and worldview as uh, enshrined in the Geda institution, 
could become the center of Horn of Africa way of life or politics. So he went as far as saying, making this kind of a statement to the Oromo community. When he goes to a different community, particularly to the Amhara community or anyone who holds the dominant narrative uh, of uh, Ethiopia, he taps into their, you know, their uh, uh, emotion of bringing the lost dignity of bringing Ethiopia to its proper place in history. And that was actually a coded word saying that he will bring the old Ethiopia that was created in the image of a single ethno-national group. It was a coded word. He also went as far as uh, uh, discounting the, the sense of marginalization and victimhood, uh, a lot of Ethiopian uh, communities, especially in the South, including the Oromos, were feeling and saying that those narratives uh, of victimhood were exaggerations or false narratives. So that really helped them gain support from the Amhara ethnic groups and or those who were really the dominant mainstream uh, uh, political uh, uh, groups. So this is also another concern of uh, uh, his approach to gaining support by tailoring his approach and his rhetoric to different international groups. So eventually, uh, really, when the political space started to narrow, and the main targets appeared to be the Oromo uh, uh, political parties, particularly the Oromo Federalist Congress and the Oromo Liberation Front. This was partly seen as uh, a way of avoiding competition from the uh, Oromo constituents because Abe himself uh, was uh, an Oromo, or that's what he says, he's an Oromo, and that's how he's perceived throughout Ethiopia as an Oromo. So he probably felt a sense of insecurity in terms of uh, the political comp competition he was facing among his Oromo constituents. So he, his, uh, you know, the fact that he resorts to uh, narrowing political space, particularly in the Oromia regional state, which is the homeland of Ethiopia, was seen as sense, uh, uh, you know, as his way of eliminating his political opponents. So that was uh, in really uh, when things start uh, to spiral out of control in terms of, uh, uh, you know, narrowing the political space. And uh, a lot of political forces were also complaining that they were not really participants in the dialogue and uh, uh, constructing uh, the new Ethiopia. And uh, there was some, uh, they were complaining that some of the meeting they were holding with the uh, government, with the ruling party, were simply fakids and officials just for the show. So there was a lot of complaints coming from the uh, different political groups. And uh, so that's uh, who Abi Ahmed is. And, you know, I think he, uh, I can say he's very skilled in terms of his uh, communicating with the public, very skilled in terms of, you know, projecting that uh, persona of uh, transformative leader. 
he was also very skillful in terms of tailoring his rhetoric to different ethno-national groups. But unfortunately, that kind of thing may have a temporary uh, gain. But as we see the long-term impact of that approach uh, is really increasing the rift between different ethno-national groups in Ethiopia. Thank you for uh, such a substantive and detailed explanation. One of the things I'm curious on your perspective is something that's notable is his age. You know, him being in his 30s is a fairly young leader that, as you pointed out, wasn't elected. And so some people feel like his accommodation of a neo-Neftenga uh, agenda is a reflection of him maybe being under the control of like his political advisors or being co-opted in some way. Um, and particularly given his decision to invite back the militaries of uh, exiled dissidents. And so I was hoping if you could speak to that, given that he is perceived as, and at least identifies as an Oromo, but he is, um, his critics feel that he is accommodating this uh, Amhara agenda. Okay. I think his age, uh, for the most part, most people did not make a big deal about his age. And I think most uh, of his critic comes from the substance of, uh, of what he is actually doing and his policies and his world outlook. And uh, I'm not sure if I can attribute it to his age, but there is a certain sense of extreme self-confidence in his ability to transform Ethiopia and in his vision and philosophy for Ethiopia. For example, in his book, Madimer, and, you know, he says, you know, he presented this Madimer philosophy as the panacea that is really a cure for all the ills of Ethiopia. Really, that's how he presented it. And I can say, I can substantiate this claim by uh, uh, telling you an excerpt from his book. And he said, the critical lesson I learned from the knowledge and the skills I had acquired from school and life experience is that there is no life challenge that the philosophy of Metemer does not solve, a barrier that it does not overcome. So this is uh, a sustaining uh, statement uh, uh, to, because it is presented as if his outlook, Mademer, which is an, as really is his own and only his own vision, to present this as the panacea that heals all, that heals all the ills of Ethiopia, is stunning. So I'm not sure if it comes from being a young uh, leader, but there is a, definitely is an inflated sense of um, ushering uh, Ethiopia into a, a new era using only his own image and his own understanding of uh, the world and Ethiopia. And uh, so it's not so much of the young age, but I think this uh, is personality and how he understands the Ethiopian, the complex uh, ethnic and uh, dynamics may have played a role in him uh, sub subscribing or, or adopt, adopting what a lot of Ethiopians considered a neo naftanya uh, policy or narrative. So neo naftanya narrative, this is not, you know, how did it manifest? If you ask how, 
why is he being accused of being a neo-Neptunian narrative? First and foremost, that's not simply because he uh, invited uh, those, uh, uh, you know, those what what they were called remnants of the old regime, and that in and by itself is not a bad thing, really. And those exiled dissident, dissidents, it is their country, and I think he did the right thing by inviting them back. Uh, but he did not show uh, much of sensitivity in terms of the uh, agony Ethiopians uh, feel when you talk about those uh, prior regimes. A lot of people see uh, the old system and resentment, and resentment. And uh, but but he used them as to uh, kind of uh, uh, fortify his own. Uh, agenda, uh, which is to uh, recreate Ethiopia that is more in the image uh, that Ethiopians abandoned, or they thought abandoned, uh, prior to uh, 1991, certainly prior to 1994. So his agenda is simply to centralize uh, Ethiopia, to create a more centralized administration by undermining the existing multinational federation. I think this, uh, uh, his vision uh, became abundantly clear when he dismantled the uh, coalition uh, party, EPRDF, Ethiopian People Revolutionary Democratic Front. It is a coalition of uh, four ethnic-based political parties. And the, his... Uh, you know, the, the, the dismantling, the dissolution of that part, uh, coalition party and creating a prosperity party is first attempt uh, to centralize power and to undermine the multinational federation. That is how it is perceived. And also the old neo-Neftania system is really also connected with the, with the dominance of uh, uh, the Amharic speakers in that country. And uh, so some of the things, the rhetoric he, uh, uh, he spoke in public also uh, using uh, Amharic as a way to unite uh, Ethiopia was also raised a lot of suspicion by many people in the South and including the Oromo. And according to him, it is actually on a video that was released to public. According to him, it is very difficult to sustain a united Ethiopia when there are fragments of linguistic community celebrating their own language and culture. This really goes against the whole spirit of uh, maintaining unity with diversity. So there are a number of reasons why Ethiopians in the South, and particularly the Oromos and the Sidamas, see Abi's vision with a lot of suspicion. And uh, so that is really mostly by what they see and by what they witnessed, that they suspect, uh, you know, they seem with suspicion. So more of his policies rather than his age has become uh, the Tory issue in Ethiopian politics. Um, 
Another example of what one might describe as insensitivity is following the death of Hachalo Hundesa. Um, and many people felt that he should be buried in Addis, or some people call it Finfinne, and then there was a dispute about him being buried in his hometown. Um, and during that process, um, Jarwar was arrested, and um, then there's like a mix of all these different allegations. Was Initially, was Jarwar responsible for Hachalu's death? Was he funded by the Egyptians? There's all this like misinformation going around, but at the end of the day, he was incarcerated um, and seemingly in a, in a prison that was, that was once closed um, due to the conditions there. And so I'm just curious about what is your perspective on Jarwar and kind of the, the distinction between um, his political views and actuality and some of the ways in which it's being uh, reported by uh, the state in Ethiopia. Okay, so the, uh, as you know, the recent turmoil in Ethiopia started after uh, Achalu Undesa was assassinated. And I think uh, people should know that Achalu is a very iconic uh, figure for the Oromo people. He is very much known for his politically inspired songs, and he articulated the grievance of the Oromo people in terms of the political, economic, linguistic, and as well as cultural marginalization. So Achalu Ntesa is a person, is an, is an iconic figure who was created, credited, credited for uh, giving the soundtrack for Oromo protest movement uh, that was uh, taking place between 2015 and 2018. His songs, uh, you know, the, the Malinjera is the first uh, soundtrack, which means uh, what existence is mine. This song really encapsulates the existential threat the Oromo people have been feeling and continue to feel in Ethiopia. This song really galvanized the Oromo youth uh, called the Keros. It gave them the energy. It gave them the energy when they needed it the most at that time because there was intense crackdown on this protesting youth by Ethiopian government. And then he released another album, Jera, which means uh, we are here, or what exists uh, uh, can also mean uh, we do exist. So this song is sort of an affirmation that change is possible and freedom or changes on the horizon. So this song uh, soundtrack was released at the time when the Ormo protest move movement gained in momentum, when the government was showing signs of uh, 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 weakening. So he's a revolutionary singer and who deliver his songs not only like, you know, using, uh, you know, beautiful lyrics, but also by deploying the uh, unique Oromo uh, musical genre called uh, Gerarsa, which is kind of a, a freestyle narrative that's used, usually used when, uh, when they are singing about a heroism, uh, grievance and also certain uh, key historical moments. So it was this musical icon as an activist, uh, human rights defender for the Oromo, who was revered by not only Oromos, by the Ethiopian people. It was this musical icon who was assassinated on June 29. So he, he resides in Addis Ababa, or called Finfini, 
although he was born in Ambo, uh, as a few kilometers away from Addis Ababa. And the, where he would be buried uh, carries a lot of significance, uh, you know, political significance in particular. And one, he lives in, you know, his residence is in Addis Ababa. So you could, you know, one can argue that that might be the right place for him to be buried. And there was also the case can be made that, okay, it's okay to take him to his birthplace to bury him. But I think at the center of this controversy of where he should be buried is a lot of, uh, has a lot of political significance because Addis Ababa, uh, the issue of Addis Ababa is one of the emotive uh, issues for Oromos. As uh, many people know, Addis Ababa, before it was named Addis Ababa, it's called uh, Finfinni, was considered as the uh, original uh, home of Oromo, or originally considered as the Oromo land before uh, you know, it was uh, founded as the capital city of Ethiopia. So that is a city that transformed itself from being uh, exclusively or majority Oromo into two or almost now becoming a minorities in Addis Ababa. So or almost see Addis Ababa as a, a scar in their national psyche, as a sign of Oromo's humiliation as their cultural identity was displaced from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Oromos want to uh, make Addis Ababa as one of, uh, under the jurisdiction of the Oromi original state, or at the very least, they want some nominal recognition of Addis Ababa being the homeland of the Oromos. Recognition in the form of uh, implementing what the constitution um, says uh, in 1995, but that was never came to fruition. Now, the issue of Addis Ababa became now just implementing what the constitution grants Oromos having a special uh, right over Finfinne. Even the very image of historical history of Addis Ababa as an Oromo, as a historical Oromo land, is being undermined and challenged now since Abi came to power. It is in the midst of all this uh, controversy that Achal Mundesa was assassinated. So the issue of where he would be buried became very highly politicized. Some want him, did not want him to be buried in Addis Ababa because for them, it is a way of admitting Addis Ababa as a homeland of the Oromo people. So this is really the issue, uh, in my opinion, and it's not so much of, you know, the burial place, but it is a very uh, intertwined with a very emotive issue of uh, the status of Addis Ababa, uh, and also who has the historical right to call Addis Ababa their ancestral land. Uh, I think that's how I see it. So the issue 
spiraled out of control. Uh, and, uh, and the Oromo people did express their anger by the assassination of Achalu Ndesa because he is really, really uh, uh, a well-respected figure. He's the face of Oromo resistance. They expressed their anger by going out on, uh, on the streets to uh, protest his assassination, demanding justice, and uh, as well as, uh, you know, just expressing their mourning. And But what the government uh, did was quite alarming. Uh, the government violently responded by cracking down on the protesters and actually, uh, you know, inflamed the protests uh, or the anger even further by detaining uh, the key political figures within the Oromo resistance movement. So those are uh, Jawar Mohammed and Bakala Garba. Those are leaders, uh, uh, the members of the Oromo Federalist Congress. And it's very uh, important to underline the significance these two leaders uh, have in Ethiopia. And Bakala Garba is a former political prisoner uh, before Abi came to power. He was in prison two times. And he was released after Abi came to power. Now he's back to prison. And he is the man who was uh, who is a fierce advocate of nonviolent resistance. He preached and practiced nonviolent resistance since he came to the political scene. He actually uh, is the man who translated uh, uh, Martin Luther King's uh, uh, speech, including I Have a Dream speech, into Afan Oromo as a native language. So he really went this far uh, to ensure that Romo people have a good understanding of their uh, violent, uh, nonviolent resistance and civil resistance, and also to teach the Romo people the uh, uh, one method of you know, a struggle to eliminate uh, the injustice or more people have been feeling for a century now. So the arrest of Bakalakarwa is quite provocative. Uh, and also Jawar Muhammad is also, you know, he's a, really by far the main face of the Oromo protest movement that was uh, uh, that went on between 2015 and 2018. He is credited as the brain behind this resistance movement. He he is educated in, in the United States, and he, he he went to Stanford University, where he earned his uh, political science degree, and then he earned his master's degree from uh, Columbia University here in New York. So his education and as well as uh, he engaged in a lot of reading about the uh, non-resistance movements in many uh, uh, countries, including the American Civil Rights Movement, uh, Gandhi's. He studied those movements. And as well as he also had the uh, opportunity to live in different countries. So uh, he traveled all over the world and he lived in, uh, in Asia, in areas where there is, uh, you know, rife with ethnic uh, conflicts, 
So he was a very good observant of uh, issues beyond Ethiopia, uh, ethnic dynamics, conflicts, resistance movements. So he put all this lesson he learned uh, from his schooling, personal experience, he put all this together to uh, really come up with the idea that the Oromo question can be answered by using, by employing a, a grassroots resistant movement, resistance, nonviolent resistance. It was actually mocked by some uh, who thought that a brutal regime like the one prior to Abi could not possibly be uh, you know, eliminated using uh, with a bare hand. So there was a, he came to with this idea of uh, engaging in nonviolent str struggle at the time when a lot of Ethiopians, you know, there were a dozen of uh, armed groups were trying to uh, uh, depose the Ethiopian government. And he translated also the uh, Gene Sharp's uh, famous book uh, um, uh, to Afan Oromo, which uh, became, uh, you know, uh, a handbook for the Oromo protest movement in 2015-2018. Soon after he completed his master's degree, basically he engaged in almost full-time basis and act activism, and he established the Oromia Media Network from his home base in, in Minnesota. So the Oromo Media Network became uh, the media that amplified the voice of Oromo people in Ethiopia. It also served as a platform for not just for Oromos, but for many marginalized communities in Ethiopia. So after he moved to uh, Ethiopia, he joined uh, Oromo Federalist Congress and with a plan to run for election. Uh, so this figure, Jora Mohammed, who's an activist, human rights uh, right defender, a politician, a media person, and a thought leader, and as well as I would say he is also a public intellectual. It is this person that was arrested on June 30th. So it was an extremely provocative move uh, by the government and the result of which we are witnessing now. Now, Ethiopia is facing, uh, you know, unrest as we speak. The hormone protest movement that subsided in 2018 after Abiy came to office is now reignited. And it is posing a serious challenge, not only to, uh, to the government, but and also to, to the country, uh, as the government is not really responding in a more counterproductive manner. So this arrest of Jawar Mohammed and Bakala uh, Garba uh, was extremely provocative. And uh, these are the people that, uh, you know, laid the nonviolent resistance movement from 2015, 2018. And they are the face of those movement. And to put those people behind bars as extremely provocative and uh, it is definitely not going to lead to a peaceful resolution of uh, political differences uh, that is creating havoc in Ethiopia. 
And in that context, it would be really helpful if you could share your views on, you know, as you allude to in that piece, it's an extremely polarized situation. Um, and there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation happening in terms of the, the media coverage, both in the Western media and within Ethiopia, about, you know, kind of the context and who are the main actors and what are their motives uh, within the protest. And one of the, the more serious allegations um, is this comparison of a section of the Roma Liberation Front or the Roma Liberation Army, depending on who you're speaking to, and comparing them to the Interhamway and saying that there were incidents where people um, were given lists and there were Romos from outside of the town, like, for example, in Shashamani, who were sent to execute and um, harass non um, either non-Muslim Romos or people from other ethnic groups, and that uh, there's a section of people who, under the cover of grief of Fuchalo, are committing ethnic cleansing. Um, I have reached out to several people um, who have made some of these allegations, including the minority rights campaign. There's a, a writer from Kampala, Uganda, who's made this claim, but I have not seen any evidence to substantiate it. However, it's one of the one of the more common things that comes up. And so given this well-documented handbook of nonviolence that Jarwar has been pushing forward, how do you respond to this this allegation of ethnic cleansing or this comparison to the Interhamway? Okay. All right. Good good question. I've heard those allegations. So it's very important to note that uh, after Achalus' assassination, uh, the arrests... was the the, the the crisis, the political crisis was happening while Ethiopia is in a complete darkness. The internet was totally shut down for three weeks. During that time, the uh, Ethiopian government had a complete monopoly of information coming out of Ethiopia. And based on the government account, uh, the, there were a number of arrests and a number of uh, lives were lost, and uh, the government says 239 people uh, lost their life, and in the first week of the arrest, so about uh, 167 people died. So according to the government's uh, breakdown of ethnicity, and it's actually the majority of people who died during the arrest, uh, arrest were almost that's about 68%. We're almost, uh, so the figure is really, uh, you know, doesn't really tell us much about who is the victim and who is the perpetrator, definitely. But the alarm, there, there was, a, you know, definitely the, the, the number of people who died is alarming. And the number of people, if you break it down by ethnicity, there are a lot more Romos. So it's not clear who killed who. But what we know is, by and large, the Romo people have been the victims, and the Ethiopian people have been a victim of this violence. So it is, but the narrative uh, that came from Ethiopia, while Ethiopia is in a complete darkness, while the government and the government affiliates are monopolizing information flow, is a narrative that portrays one community as victim, another community as perpetrator. This is a very dangerous narrative. And one, by portraying a certain community, the Oromo as perpetrators, 
what that did is to sort of legitimize the inhumane treatment of the Oromo people by the government. That's very dangerous. It also goes to, uh, contributes to further polarization of communities within Ethiopia. So they might see a short-term gain in terms of legitimizing the massive crackdown happening in Ethiopia, legitimizing the imprisoning of political uh, leaders. But in the long run, it is really going to end up polarizing the Ethiopian society. So I think this is a counterproductive that people need to focus on resolving any issues that contribute to intercommunal violence. It's very important to note that intercommunal violence has been happening for years in Ethiopia. And a prime example was the intercommunal conflict between the Romo and the Somalis in the eastern part of Ethiopia. Both communities suffered devastatingly. And particularly, there were about a million of Oromos displaced and hundreds who lost their life. And what surprises me the most is there was no accountability in terms of who perpetrated those crimes, and there was no uproar when those crimes were committed. Another tragedy also in uh, Romo's uh, uh, displacement from Penishango, Gomu's region, and hundreds of thousands, many people lost their life. I can go and on and on listing issues of intercommunal violence in Ethiopia. The focus, therefore, has to be resolving the issues that are triggering intercommunal violence. But what the government and pro-government uh, media are doing is actually further creating a rift between communities by presenting one as victim and another as a perpetrator, while all these conflicts are happening in the context of really widespread uh, intercommunal conflict. And what alarmed me the most is, is actually this narrative of portraying the Oromo community, who by and large are the victims of this violence as perpetrators, is a really very dehumanizing effect uh, that robs Oromo people of, you know, the sense of dignity. Uh, uh, so it has a very dehumanizing effect. And it really is alarming that this may even worsen the uh, government crackdown on the uh, on the Oromo uh, people, and also uh, even some non-state actors may be added to the mix. Uh, if you're actually talking about uh, organized Oromos attacking others, and you know there are some calling for others to defend themselves, so that is really a very dangerous narrative that must be avoided. And the government actually must act responsibly uh, when they uh, talk about this violence, intercommunal violence. So what I see is very dangerous narrative, and we have with the very myopic goal of 
winning the narrative or the political upper hand, but over long term, it will have a devastating impact on the uh, uh, coexistence of different ethnic communities in Ethiopia, and particularly also on the human rights of the Oromo people who are facing really tremendous uh, 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 human rights abuse as we speak. Uh, for example, nobody's talking about the fact that thousands of Oromos are in prison, okay? Most of them do not, are not even even by the government's admission, are innocent, uh, as far as we know. So this is very alarming issues are obscured by the narrative that dehumanizes Oromo people and it takes away any empathy. The Oromo people must earn from the ongoing violence. So it's very disheartening to see uh, some media, even outside of the country, amplifying this uh, dehumanizing narrative of the Oromo people while what we see is a massive scale of human rights abuse, and that is we're learning more and more now when the internet uh, uh, was unblocked uh, on June 23rd, we see disturbing images of uh, you know people from all walks of life uh, um, you know being victims of a state violence, and there has been children women uh, killed by bullets, and there has been uh, incidents of rape by security forces. All these are obscured by this dangerous narrative that portrayed the very victims as victimizers. And as we speak by government's own admission, there are over 7,000 uh, or almost languishing in Ethiopia's prison very crowded uh, prison. And it's very hard actually even to uh, verify the numbers because the government now has a monopoly of information. But what we know is uh, schools are being used as detention centers. So that really uh, suggests that the number of people in prison may be much higher than what the government uh, tells the world. And uh, uh, this massive arrest also has to be understood uh, in the context of the growing uh, global pandemic. And there are reports of COVID-19 outbreak in prisons. And uh, at least one Oromo political leader from the Oromo Federalist Congress, uh, uh, Dejeni Tafa, has missed his court appointment because he is ill and reportedly from COVID-19. So we are seeing this mass incarceration in the era of COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, this is against uh, the recommendation of the global health leaders from WHO, several U United Nations uh, bodies, human rights organizations, who really discourage pretrial detention in the era of COVID-19. What we see in Ethiopia is the exact opposite. So this is the time actually to empathize to the Oromo people, not to rub off their humanity 
by portraying them as victimizers. Thank you again for that. And I want to be mindful of your time because we're, we're almost at an hour. But an important um, question that I wanted to raise that relates to some of this false narrative and um, also what you mentioned as far as Jarwar Muhammad spending significant time in the United States is that um, particularly, I think particularly in Minnesota, a lot of the leaders of the Justice for, for George Floyd protests um, happen to be Ethiopian, some of them Oromo, and then a lot of these diaspora, um, I want to say kids, but people in their 20s and their teens, um, led uh, protests in support of the Oromo protest space in Ethiopia. And um, I'm just thinking about this relationship between the diaspora and um, the the comparisons of Chalo's song about what existence is this and the experience of Black Lives Matter and what it means to be Black in America, um, not to flatten the, the historical differences, um, but I'm just curious about where do you see those parallels? There are some that are saying um, that MAGA, making America great again, is very similar to this idea of making Ethiopia great again, bringing this unity, and others who say that um, the American racial politics doesn't translate um, in that way to the Ethiopian context. So I'm just curious about how you see this relationship between the diaspora and people back home, as well as the Black Lives Matter movement and the Aroma protests. All right. Those are very important comparisons. Definitely there's a lot of differences historically, but the similarity is the fact that at a single incident, uh, the death of George Floyd here in the United States and the death of Achalondesa in Ethiopia triggered a massive anger meant to bring about a lasting political and social change. That is the similarity. And of course, in, in terms of uh, Achalu Ndesa, he is a very iconic uh, figure for Oromo. Although George Floyd, uh, you know, definitely did not enjoy the same kind of uh, iconic figure, but nonetheless, the death of those two individuals were catalysts for massive protest movement that are meant to change the course of history, that are meant to bring about a lasting polit political and social change. So that is a, a similarity. And it's a very interesting to note that the reaction of the, those forces of a status quo to the George Floyd death or to the Black Lives Matters movement here, and also to Oromo protest movement in Ethiopia, the reaction of the forces of the status quo is strikingly identical. To legitimize the, uh, uh, the um, cracking down on the Black Lives uh, uh, Matter movement and as well as Oromo protest movement, both forces of the status quo, both in Ethiopia and here, they use the term law and order. And this is, I find it very, very striking because these are really coded words. One, to legitimize, to delegitimize the movement. Two, to legitimize acts to repress those movements. So there is a striking similarity between the two. And so in many ways, there's a lot of similarity and in terms of the serving as a catalyst 
and uh, for uh, the grassroots movements, and also very strikingly the response of uh, forces of the status quo uh, uh, is also very identical in both cases. I guess my, la my last question, just, just to, to linger there for a moment, is that, you know, what do you make of the, the political consciousness of first-generation um, Ethiopian uh, Americans, including, including myself, because my father is from uh, Jimma, Ethiopia, and came here at 17, and then I've, I've grown up here kind of in an Ethiopian community, but very much uh, American, Ferenji maybe. Um, and so... For me, I'm, you know, I'm a monolingual English speaker. I'm following the news largely through the Western media. And some of the critics have, have mentioned, like, how much do the diaspora really understand the complexity of the political terrain in, in Ethiopia? Um, and I'm just curious about, do you feel like this level of political leadership by first generation people represents a shift in terms of um, the first generation being directly involved in uh, politics back home, or do you see this as kind of parallels to the Asuna movement and other other times, uh, like in the seventies when there was uh, transnational solidarity? Yes, and I think um, Ethiopians have been very active. Uh, Ethiopians in the diaspora, including Oromo and then Oromos as well. But I think in the last few um, months, and particularly after the death of Achalundesa. And there is an, an incredible level of involvement of uh, Ethiopian Americans or Oromo Americans uh, in the uh, affairs of in the events unfolding in Ethiopia. And certainly, uh, this is not from their first-hand experience of living in Ethiopia, but both whether they're Oromo Ethiopian or non-Oromo Ethiopian, they all hear stories of grievance. Uh, from their parents, and others may see, may may hear his, history of glory of Ethiopia. So there are different historical memories uh, uh, that are passed on from parents to children. So for almost, uh, you know, the Oromo, uh, Oromo Americans hear his story of victimization history of grievance, that is the historical memory they heard from Ethiopia. While on the other hand, the glory of Ethiopia that was passed on to other Ethiopians, particularly those of uh, Amara ethnic background, comes from not just from their parents, but also there was uh, kind of memories that are embedded in day-to-day -day life uh, of Ethiopia from textbooks, from movies, cinema, music. There are a number of ways and actually embedded that history of a sense of lost glory into the minds of the uh, uh, Amharic-speaking uh, or descendants of Amharic-speaking Ethiopians. So the murder of uh, Achalu Ndesa, uh, basically Achalu Ndesa is someone who has uh, uh, traveled across the United States a number of Oromo Americans had direct contact. Uh, they, you know, they, they they have seen him. They have attended his uh, uh, his concerts, and he also had, uh, you know, his music had appealed even to those who spoke who did not 
who, who do not speak Afano Romo. So they know him on a personal level. And his murder really demonstrated in black and white that the history of Oromo being victim in that country, it is showed them before their eyes. So I would say this is, has been a very, very uh, defining moment for Oromo Americans because the murder of Ajalu Desa and what is believed to be the cause for his death highlighted the historical marginalization of Ethiopia, uh, for Oromos in Ethiopia. So that really, uh, I would say, is a, a significant uh, a turning point for Oromo Americans, and as it is for the Oromos who live in Ethiopia as well. Um, I know I said that was the final question, but I just I did have actually one that I wanted to scroll back to is that I was curious. Um, my understanding is that the the literal translation of Kiru is uh, an unmarried uh, man who's like energetic. And I'm just is is it that the gendered aspect of that just doesn't translate the same in English or is there some particularity um, to to this like student uh, youth movement being uh, categorized by like the male gender by this word. And that's actually, I, I, we, we say Kero for the sake of expediency, but actually we say Kero Kare. Kare represents the, the female and Kero as a male. So it is really not exclusive uh, for male. It is actually considered a Kero slash Kare movement. So it is an, an all-encompassing movement. And especially, I think it's very important to know that some of the uh, voices uh, uh, of the Oromo protest movement, if you see in the diaspora, are actually Kari, that's a woman. So they really are playing a major, major role in amplifying the voice of Oromos uh, in Ethiopia. So uh, definitely there was a uh, we just used Kero for experience, uh, but I think it's a movement of Kero slash Kari. Um, so that's it for my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, one, one thing I probably skipped, uh, you asked about uh, Jor Muhammad, and as I uh, mentioned before, uh, you know, he's, he's the man who not only, who understood what nonviolent movement is all about, in many ways, uh, you know, he, he went to school with the primary intent of learning about grassroots movement and nonviolence movement. He traveled to many places. And, and in fact, what, what I find very ironic was a week prior to assassination of Achalo Ndesa, he was, uh, Joram Mohammed was interviewed on a, on a, a Hadu TV, it was a TV, a local TV station. And at that time, they were asking him uh, if he had any remorse about the nonviolent struggle, uh, because there were some people who died in that movement. So that question in and by itself is surprising because, uh, you know, the uh, movement really brought down one of the most repressive uh, uh, regime in Africa. And Jawar at that time, you know, uh, people 
I know some people conveniently want to overlook is he emphasized the role of nonviolent movement. And he really spoke about the, you know, he justified it, uh, why nonviolent movement is, uh, you know, less costly in terms of human and material resources. And, uh, you know, th those are the kind of things he spoke even in the days prior to his arrest. So to actually, uh, you know, implicate him in any violence, it is completely not only unfounded, it is actually, you know, not consistent with what we already seen with Jawar being the leader of the Oromo protest movement. And day and night, he's been actually advocating for nonviolence as the most powerful way to resist authoritarian uh, governments uh, in Ethiopia. So I think it's one question that I uh, overlooked that I didn't answer to you. I think beyond any reasonable doubts that Jawar is a force uh, uh, that influenced the trajectory of Ethiopia in terms of their perception of how to bring about uh, political uh, change uh, without resorting to armed struggle. Thank you.